Welcome to Post-Traumatic Thriving, where we explore life's toughest issues, along with the art, science, and stories of resilience. Please be advised that our guests share their raw stories of addiction, abuse, crime, and tragedy, along with tips to survive and thrive. And now, here are our hosts, Dr. Randall Bell and Tanya Brown. Hello, welcome back to Post-Traumatic Thriving. I am Dr. Randall Bell, and I'm joined by Mel Levy, our producers. Hello, everybody. Sitting in for Tanya Brown, who's out sick, and our incredible guest, which is Mr. Danny Ray, who is the author of this book, No, I Can't Make Your Wife Disappear. Uh, We are in the Thrive stage, which is always kind of the fun place to end up on this podcast because we're talking about uh, all the cool stuff you're doing. And this is the time to not hold back. Let's <laughs> let's brag about you. But Danny not only wrote this book, but was on Penn & Teller. And we'll find out on this episode whether he fooled them or went home in agonizing defeat. We'll find out. And uh, we'll find out what conversation took place on that couch. And we're, what else are we going to find out on this episode? A lot of stuff. You, you'll have to ask the right questions to find out because I don't know if I'm going to brag about myself. I don't know <laughs> if that's happening. Well, um, Danny is a youth pastor and wildly successful at going around the country with big crowds, uh, entertaining. And if you missed the first episode, I met Danny at the Magic Castle. The Magic Castle is it's a private club up in Hollywood. It is the elite of the elite magicians. Uh, I am technically a member, (laughs) but I can't fool anybody. Um, But Danny works not only in the Magic Castle frequently, but in the close-up room. The close-up room is where eyeballs are a couple feet away from your tricks, and only the best of the best of the best perform in that room. And out of that, I've been a member there since 19, early 1990s. And Danny, in my mind, was, is, is number one. Um, and that's saying something because there's some incredible talent. But I kind of hung around and became a, a Danny fan because <laughs> his show was so off the chart. I mean, women were screaming. Guys were yelling because he fooled us so badly. And then what I do when there's a really great show is I go back again and again to try and figure out how this guy's pulling this stuff off. And I still can't figure it out. It's it's like, I think the guy is supernatural if I didn't know better. Are you supernatural, by the way? I forgot to ask you. No, I'll slide a hand. I'll slide a hand. Okay. Well, it's good. It's good stuff. So um, let's start where the last episode ended. And you had this conversation on the couch with regards to your childhood uh, years and the fact that your biological father uh, left the family when you were a young boy. Uh, Obviously, that I can't imagine the hurt that that caused you and your family. And then ended up in prison. He was addicted to uh, gambling. He was somewhat of a con artist, it sounds like. And... uh, and then you're having this conversation around the uh, and with around with the family. Yeah. Let's start with that. Yeah. So we're sitting on the couch and my mom, you know, tells us that, you know, that he uh, Phil called, had two heart attacks. She's confirmed it with the, the doctors. And if we want to get in contact with them, she has the number. And I think it's kind of telling 
on where my my siblings and I are on, on life at this point, you know. So I would have been, I'm guessing maybe 32, 33, somewhere in there. And um, my sister says, you know, if he walked in that door right now, you know, I would just hug him and I'd be so thankful, you know, and just really excited. My brother's like, if he walked through that door, I would kill him. And there's mm. nobody that could stop me. And wow. he's a big guy and I'm, I'm like, yep. All right. And he was literally like red in the face, like sharing. And then, um, then I'm like kind of indifferent, you know, it's been 30 years since I've seen him, you know, uh, maybe 29 years since I've seen him. I had written him in prison a couple times, maybe talked to him on the phone once, um, in prison and then lost contact when he got out, he didn't contact, he ended up on and off the streets, kind of in and out of jail. And, um, yeah. And so I, I was, I definitely wanted to meet him, you know, like, it, but it wasn't like, I can't wait to meet you. Know, you know, at that time I kind of grown in my own family, grown in my faith, you know, but I, I feel like anytime a door opens, you know, like you have to contemplate, are you going to go through that? And I was like, I'm going to go through this door. Like I wouldn't, you know, especially if you have, um, somebody who might live for the next six year or six, um, six months, you know, they, you know, the doctors like get your affairs in order, you know? And so, mm. uh, so I did, I, I sat down to meet with them at Coco's and Chula Vista in San Diego and my sister. So it was the two of us. And, and now, you know, I'm in a different situation where I've been dealing with other people's trauma, my own trauma, and especially my sister's trauma. And she, uh, I'm sorry to yeah. interrupt, but this is, this is your, yeah. your uh, biological father, Phil. Yes. You and your sister and your brother opted out. Did My they... brother opted out, yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead. Sorry. So it's just the two of us and Phil. <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you sit across from a man you haven't seen in 30 years, and he's not anything like the man you have in your head. You know, he's an, he's an older man now, you know, and... Um, and it, that time my sister had, um, attributed a lot of her, um, sexual abuse and different things to him, um, a lot of her trauma. And so I had a lot of questions that way for him. You know, it, I don't want to say it was an interrogation, but it was like, I, I want questions answered. Mm, I've had yeah. questions for decades now. And, and so uh, you know, we, we had some pleasantries or as a moment, I remember where he held up his hand and had me hold up my hand, you know, and, you know, it's the first time I have, you know, my hand pressed against his hand and, you know, I can see he has a larger hand at pretty, you know, big mittens, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, and, you know, like I, I remember that moment, but the next probably four months I met with them a couple times and called them a few times and pretty much all of it was more on the lines of interrogation. Like, hey, I have some more questions. You know, what about this? What about this? One of them being with the abuse that he denied that, you know, that um, he did toward my sister, and which I had heard my whole life. You know, it was Phil, you know. And so I, um, I talked to my sister about that. And she basically admitted that she had projected that on him. But I, I'm not sure, like, is she trying to protect him now? And and he talked to me about, like, you know, when you go to prison for statutory rape, you end up in a lot of 
you end up with the pedophiles um because that's what that is and mm-hmm. um and you end up in all kinds of rehabilitation counseling and with that he has a lot of knowledge about pedophiles that i didn't and he was able to say look you know if you want to talk about this stuff i'm like i do he's like it doesn't he's like i know a ton of pedophiles and it doesn't happen where they jump age groups he's like my for whatever the reasons are and we talked about that a little bit but was kind of pre-pubescent like right at that age of like changing he's like that was where i was dealing with things but your sister's eight years old he's like the guys that have my situation don't jump down like it's it's not a thing that happens Obviously, there's all kinds of exceptions to that, but he's sharing like knowledge that way that made me kind of believe his story. And and that's actually when I confronted my sister on like, what's going on? Like, you know, like you seem to be dodging some of the questions there. And so I talked to her and she's like, no, and shared with me, you know, some of the um, reasons why she projected that, you know, with all pain and trauma, all that, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. She ended up giving that um um, putting that towards him, but with, um, uh, yeah. just to pause there for a moment. Yeah. Um, so it sounds as if your biological father admitted that he had a pedophilia problem. I guess it's an understatement. Uh, but, it, but is, am I right so far that but Correct. It didn't, yeah. it didn't apply to your sister's age? Correct. Okay. So, okay. Well, that's, that's an ugly confession there. I mean, but and he, to my knowledge, he was honest with me about, you know, all, all the questions I had were confirmed either through my mom, through my, my stepdad, my dad, um, and my sister, you know, like the, uh-huh. I, my brother and I aren't, I mean, we're closer now, but we never talk about these things. Like it's really painful for yeah, him to, for sure. um, talk in honestly, like I, I, I just don't think he has the, the capacity at this point um, to have that conversation, you know, yeah. frank conversation about that. Well, and, and your dad or your biological dad, yeah. he is facing an eminent demise. He's yeah, has die nothing soon. to hide. So he's kind of coming clean in a, in a uh, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, like with the the I had questions about drinking. He's like, I've never had that struggle of drinking. Like these are my my struggles, you know, with gambling. Which, like I said, to the day he died he would spend his entire paycheck hoping to make it big, you know? And um, I met him one time down at the poker room where he would play in downtown San Diego and, you know, found out, you know, kind of like a little bit of his life um, style that way. But those interrogation, that questions, like in a sense, I had all my questions that I could think of answered after four months. And then I made the decision. I'm like, look, Phil, I'm never going to ask you anything about the past again. If you want to start a relationship, um, we could do that if, you know, and I, I knew he was interested, but I'm never going to bring it up again. You know, if you want to bring up anything in the past, I'm willing to talk about it. But on my end, I'm not going to bring up and because I think the conversations we we're having were tense and frank and like, um, not that I was callous, but it's it's not a, a man that I was close to in my life, you know, like um, and I dealt with like, the, you know, the the pain of that. Um, and so now I just wanted more answers. But then it came to the point where I'm like, well, I would like to, you know, see where this goes. You know, I haven't had him in my life in, you know, 28 years. So let's let's yeah. see where this goes. Yeah. Did, was he uh, remorseful? Was did he express remorse or was it more matter of fact? What what did that look like? 
I don't remember there ever being like any, not remorseful, regretful. Like he definitely regrets and um, a lot of regrets that way. But I don't know if he, I can't ever remember. It doesn't mean he didn't say it. Um, you know, a lot of this, I would have to check journals and stuff. I, I wrote, you know, some things in journals around that time. But I don't remember an apology. And I wasn't necessarily looking for an apology at that time. Yeah. Well, let me try and wrap my head around that because here's a guy who deserted his three kids and his wife. Yeah. And I'm just kind of wondering out loud if he was a sociopath. That's antisocial personality disorder. That's where you don't have a conscience. Yeah. Um, And a classic characteristic of sociopaths because I've known a couple in life yeah, and it's right out of the textbook there. They lack emotion. Did he kind of lack emotion in all this? No, there, there were a couple times. I think I saw him cry about things or things that, um, you know, I, I think he had regrets that he wasn't there, but not like, I'm so sorry. I was, you know, like there wasn't to my knowledge, any of that, but realizing the life he chose um, and what he could have had, you know, and wish he could have been there. And so we started to see each other like, I don't know, once every three months, something like that. And, you know, like he he would live eight years, you know, after the doctors gave him. And I really do think part of that was there's something really healing about having family back in your life. My sister and I would connect with them mm. till the day he died. He would end up meeting my kids. It was really guarded by my wife. Um, and we'd do it at Thanksgiving time, you know, before we went down to see my parents, we'd spend 15, 20 minutes. And it's in those moments you could see like, had his life been different? Had he, you know, and I found out all of his backstory and all that. And, you know, it's that whole thing that, uh, we talked about earlier is that you had to make a choice to stop the cycle and, he just didn't, you know, like there's all kinds of. So, so he had been abused. In yeah, his, his um, father was a heavy alcoholic. And I think his mom, uh, there's some deep depression and different stuff there. Uh-huh. He's the runt of 10 brothers and sisters. And so I think there's different abuses going on there as well. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, and that's by no means excuses no. his behavior, yeah, yeah. but. Um, you know, I, 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 I get it. Um, so he's regretful, but he's not apologizing. Uh, that's again, not to my knowledge. That doesn't okay. mean he didn't, but I, I don't remember that. That doesn't stay, um, stick out of my mind, but it's also like, I think the, uh, what, have you ever read that book? Love languages by Gary Chapman, mm-hmm. the five love. Um, so my love language is physical touch and, my wife's is like words of affirmation or acts of slavery. Uh, no, it's acts of service. Um, real similar. <laughs> so, uh, so early on in our relationship, um, the way my sister and I would work through like forgiveness is, um, uh, she put her hand on my leg. I put my hand on her leg and it, it, that means it's done, you know? So when Kim would say sorry to me, which meant nothing, I didn't need that. And I put my hand on her leg. We both felt horrible, even though we're trying to communicate 
like you're forgiven. It's done, you know, but we need to reverse that. I need to learn to say sorry. And she needed to learn to put her hand on my leg. Um, mm. And cause that's how that communicated. So I wonder if, uh, if the physical touch, even of him, like putting his hand up against that type of thing, or, you know, I'm proud of you, son and give it, you know, like things like that. I never called them dad or father till the day he died, but, um, you know, he'd call me, you know, this is my son, this is, you know, and, uh, so I think that there might've been an expression of forgiveness in that or, um, of apology, but yeah, I, I don't know if I would have recognized a, a sorry. That's not so it's not that I don't ever need that, but it, it wasn't something I was looking for. Yeah. Did this, was this a healing event for you or these, these meetings where they, were they healing or were they, what motivated uh, you, your healing or his or both or neither? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I know for a fact, I think it brought healing to him and having him meet, um, family and, and being connected with me, I do think gave him, uh, hope that he would talk about, you know, that, um, I think helped him to live. I think with hope, you know, that gives people, uh, I, there's no way I could confirm. Maybe he would have, you know, had he never met us, he would have lived eight years, but I think there's something tangible about, about, um, grace and forgiveness and hope and reconciliation that gives people life. Um, so, uh, but sorry, what was your question with, uh, well, I'm just kind of the underlying motives. Um, yeah. You know, was was it healing for you? Was it healing for him? Yeah, I think it was healing for me. And then, you know, just I I think I felt, you know, sad for like, you know, what could have been in a person like, you know, there's, you know, endless potential in any any person, regardless of how their life ends up. But it's like, what do you do with that potential and with the the gifts that God's given you and the way you're designed and so like when I would uh, talk to him about the magic stuff, he's like, I love that you're doing stuff with danger, you know, um, where my my dad, not my biological father. I know such confusion here. Yeah. Um, you know, he never would have talked about like the danger side, but I was always interested in that. You know, so that was like one of those things where I'm like, well, where have you been? I didn't say that to him, but, uh, you know, like that um, as I'm creating um, dangerous pieces over the years and working on underwater escapes and, you know, different escapes, mm-hmm. um, those, uh, yeah. So it was kind of, um, I, ideas he would give that way that I'm like, man, that would have been, you know, fun. So I do think there was some healing and I'm really glad I invested that time. Like I think like any relationship you have to, you know, put time into it. And so, yeah. Did, did um, those last eight years, aside from meeting with you and your sister, did your brother ever meet him? I don't know. I okay. think he did. So the conversation I had with Phil one time was that they met. I have no reason to believe that that's not true, but I don't know okay, on my brother's side. Yeah. But I guess my question is, what did what did he do with his life uh, the last like, eight years? What, what did he? What was he up to? Not much, you know. He would. I went to his place one time, and it's you know all but disgusting, filled mm-hmm. with cigarette butts and urine stain you know just like it's it's a it's a mess you know and he would get his whatever the social security was go down to the poker room which wasn't far from him and then i think there was a bowling alley that wasn't far and i think those were kind of the circles he would make going to the um store get cigarettes go to the poker room 
you know, hope to win. And there's times where he won. Like I know one time he, I don't know how much money he won, but I'm guessing over like 20, 30,000 and bought my sister a used BMW, but it was probably a $15,000 car, you know? And, um, I think it's his way of trying to make up and, um, you know, and she lived in San Diego, so, or lives in San Diego. So she would see him, you know, on a regular basis, probably once a week, once every other week, you know, especially towards the end. Oh, wow. Okay. So she's seen them pretty, pretty regularly. Yeah, they were becoming close and yeah, it was definitely a difficult season, um, for both of us. Um, when he passed, I could, yeah, talk about that if you want. Well, but, sure. Um, yeah. so yeah, so we, you know, we formed a, a relationship and honestly, I thought when he passed, like my sister and I would talk about it. She's like, I'm going to be devastated. I'm like, we knew from the moment he came in, like, you know, that he's going out, you know, like what, not what's the big deal, but like, don't, uh, don't get, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, like I said, I think early on I was callous, but then eight years into it, um, I, and these are God's graces to you in the middle of, um, tragedy, but my wife and I are going to see a movie with the kids and I'm trying to think of what the movie was. It doesn't matter, but we end up, um, I'm like, let's buy um, candy at the, at the movie. We don't have time. We're going to get there late. Um, you know, it's opening week and let's get there and then buy candy in there. She's like, no, let's go to the dollar store, you know, and get candy. <laughs> so we go to the dollar store and then we get back, um, in the, to the movie theater and it's sold out. I'm like, I told you we should have got, you know, and like frustrated, we get back in the car and that's when I get the call from the doctor, um, saying that, um, Phil had passed and super thankful for numerous reasons that I got that call. My sister, I think her getting that from the doctor because he's matter of fact about, you know, things. And, yeah. uh, and I was able to call my sister and be there for her. And, um, but I was leaving the next day, like in turn, like I was home for less than 24 hours. I was, trying to go to a movie with kids. Had I been in there, I wouldn't have been able to go. I would have got the call later. It just like the timing was perfect. I drove down to San Diego. We all gathered around his body. Um, there's a, um, a chaplain that came in. She led us in a prayer and some um, just conversations or thank last words we want to say. Um, and then um, yeah, then we, we left and I said bye to everybody, drove home, slept for a few hours, got on a plane. And that next day, like I was, it was <laughs> like literally hundreds of junior hires out there. I'm crying backstage mm -hmm. as I hear the introduction, please welcome Danny Ray. And I'm like, <laughs> wipe up, <laughs> run out there. Hey, how's everyone doing? Oh, that whole week was literally like that. Like uh, I would get off stage and I'm just like, God, what's going on? Like I wasn't in And this is where like the way God's designed a family, like that biological, even though it's late in the game, he came into the picture. There's still a, you know, a, a love I had with all of his, you know, um, mess that he had, you know, that, yeah. um, that I had for him, you know? And so, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a ride yeah. emotionally. Um, may I ask how long ago it was that he passed? Uh, yeah, you could ask. I am 
guessing maybe seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, my memory on these things, like uh, pinpointing dates on my wife on early on with those things were easier, but, call. uh, yeah. So, <laughs> well, what's interesting, we're in the thrive stage and I think what I'm getting out of this is that you're thriving, but you are able to, you know, deal with this situation, this biological father who's made some, you know, serious mistakes and yet handle that in a really exemplary way. That's what thrivers do. It's not like the you become a post-traumatic thriver and all problems go away. Yeah. It's just that you're able to handle them in a way that you don't later regret or end up in jail for. Yeah. Uh, and that sounds like kind of what you experienced. Yeah. Um, I'm, like I said, really thankful. You know, he wasn't able to, I think he ended up coming to maybe one, maybe two shows, but because a lot of the events I do are youth ministry, there's, you know, he's not allowed to be in those situations. And so there was, you know, one or two that weren't that, that I was able to have him come to and was, you know, really grateful to have him, you know, see what I do. But yeah, at that point in my um, career, you know, we were, you know, we, in 2003, we launched this thing with no, no money, no gigs. No, look, that's not true. We had about six months to live on. My, my wife's grandmother had passed away, left us some money. And so we knew kind of sink or swim in six months and you know, we're doing everything we can to try to figure it out by that was, um, January. We went to part-time January, 2003, but it's really to July that we start officially like no outside income coming in. And by December we paid our bills for the first time out of the, you know, money coming in from events we were doing. And so it was, you know, this crazy roller coaster ride. And, you know, we end up, you know, that first two years went from doing no shows to doing stuff for 300 people, a thousand people. There was one event we did for 10,000 people in that like first 18 months, you know, it's just like people are starting to hear and they're like, Hey, we need to bring this guy in. Hey. And we had no idea what to charge. It was like, sure. I'll be, you know, like I, I, I was just excited to be out there doing, it. and then you quickly figure out like, okay, we've got to pay our bills too. Let's figure out how to um, figure out the price structure and all that. Yeah. 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 What? tell us the name of, of your ministry. Yeah. So it, that's a tricky question. Oh. I would just say it's Danny Ray Ministries or uh, if you go to dannyraymagic.com, it's so uh, we started a, a company called Captivator. So you could still find it under that. But we end up closing that down during on the recession about 2010. Mm-hmm. We uh, to be honest, we got into a bunch of debt and that's where we learned all of our financial kind of knowledge now and got out of debt, um, started saving, started developing that side by God's grace. We've got two kids through private college as of yesterday, wow. officially that's- paid for the, the last <laughs> bill, you know? Yeah. And, um, so yeah, all the things that, you know, a lot of people were like, there's no way, you know, uh, to pay for college these days, given, you know, unless you're in this, you know, I'm like, well, I'm going to try because, uh, and I, I just figured out like given our income, you know, like that means we're going to have to cut this out, save here, 
plan on this. And so we started planning and saving and developing that, that side of things. Yeah. So you're playing for playing, you're performing for big venues yeah. uh, all over the country. Things are, you know, you, you go through some rocky financial things and, and uh, correct for that. Yeah. And then um, your dad's passed away. Uh, life's look, you know, your kids are in, you know, despite all this, your kids are in private schools. That's nice. That's yeah. an accomplishment. Um, so, and you're, uh, this whole time you're up at the magic castle too. Am I, am I right? Yeah. So my, my daughter, uh, the, the day my daughter was born, she swallowed, um, well, before we get to swallowing meconium, um, is that was my first week at the magic castle. Mm. Um, and for those of you who don't know, at the Magic Castle, you perform 28 shows in one week, four shows a night. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Uh, but that's my first year. So that would have been 2005. And uh, and you can't sign up for five days. You sign up for seven days. That's the only option. But the entertainment director at that time, Ron Wilson, did you know Ron? I I knew of knew of him. Yeah. So yeah. Ron Wilson, he books us. And on day six, I get a call from my wife. I'm going into the hospital now. Uh, and this baby's coming out now. And mm-hmm. so I'm on my way there and I call up Ron and mm-hmm. yeah. I um, leave one dream of performing there for the first time to be with the bigger dream of being with my daughter. And so, yeah, uh, we uh, um, we get there. And when Caroline's born, you know, she swallows the meconium on the way out. And that ends up in just like a really difficult season for my wife and I, where essentially there's no room at the three nearest hospitals. So we have to go to a county hospital that's, I don't know, 30 miles away. Mm. And so I can't say bye to my wife, you know, and tell her what's going on because I'm trying to keep my eye on my daughter as she's with, you know, different doctors and then the ambulance. Then I'm trying to follow the ambulance. But you know, eventually, um, you know, I, I can't, I'm crying. I'm like, okay, I need to pull off, pull it together and then get there. And so that was a 12 day journey. And I know a lot of people have been in there a lot longer and have much worse situations than we did. But as a young parent, you just don't know what the outcome is yeah, going to be. No, that's gotta be terrifying. And yeah. And so, um, but all the things we're talking about, like with thriving is it was like, okay, we need to you know, get a, um, our prayer team and ask them to pray for us. We need to, um, talk to other people that are in that hospital with us and, you know, hear their stories and love on them and encourage them. And so those are like all the things that we're going like, yeah, we're in this and it's super painful at the same time. We want to be there for others and help them um, navigate the situations they're in. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, uh, we'll talk about the book last, but okay. you know, you, you start doing, uh, the big venues, you, you navigating your way around the challenges with, uh, your daughter's yeah. health. Um, things overall sound pretty, pretty good considering your whole journey in context. Um, Let's let's go to that fun day where you what what sparked your interest on going on to Penn and Teller because you know you can either come away a failure which ninety percent do or you yeah. can you can manage to fool these guys. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this. I think I did, but I had lunch with Penn and Teller once, 
And, and that was a crazy day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, uh, they wanted to see my milk can. I have a, I have a Houdini yeah, collection yeah, yeah. and, uh, they want to see my, my milk can. So I took it up to LA. They were filming a segment up there. And then during a break, and it was kind of a long break. We had lunch and, uh, at first teller wouldn't talk. He was doing his, he was in character yeah. kind of thing. I go, dude, I'm not recording you. You can talk if you want, but it's up to you. So he kind of came alive. But um, they're uh, they're pretty tough guys. I yeah. mean, they're they're fun and entertaining, but they can be very harsh and critical. So you're going you're going on their show. What sparked that interest in the first place? Um, there was no spark or desire to go on that show. So early on, I did a number of television shows. You know, there was. There was uh, a couple of things that just made me realize, like, I don't know if television's like my main gig. Like, I know there's guys that I just want to be on TV. Mm-hmm. But I remember there's one time, you know, where this camera's walking by and there's a few of us, you know, getting ready to go on TV. And they just hammed it up for the camera. And I'm just like, you know, looking around like I, I'm good, you know. And then I did an event with like, oh, it wasn't Cameron. I can't remember. Um Nick Cannon, a, a bunch of like big actors and the not so big actors at the end when everybody's like, t- you know, like, hey, let's get together and get everybody together. Like everybody's kind of jockeying to get next to the biggest actors. And I'm literally on the furthest side going like, do whatever you guys want. to. And <laughs> it just as much as I enjoy like the performance side being on television, it, it's not like this strong desire. And for me, it's nerve wracking. Like there's a lot of prep and we'll talk about that when we get to the pen and teller, I'm backing up a little bit to say, um, so I had another opportunity to do, which, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Houdini documentary, um, with Adrian Brody that was on the, mm-hmm. um, history channel. I did the stunt work, um, for that, the oh, underwater escape. And, I didn't know um, that. Yeah. So it was for their, um, uh, before they, officially were with the history channel Lionsgate had hired me to create all the information that would go around the world of their connections. And so I have brochures and stuff of that, but, um, Mm. yeah, interesting and some funny days there, but, uh, uh, to give you an idea of how that day started out and you wouldn't be familiar with this, um, because you know, on the pictures of Houdini that would look like this, but the director and the Houdini director, um, when I got on set, the first question was like, they looked at each other. Do we want to do the the naked shots first? And I'm looking at them. I have <laughs> another pastor with me and they're like, yeah, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, uh, let's get the naked shots out of the way. And the next thing I know, I'm with the fashion coordinator going like, do you think these Speedos look more like this picture? Do you think? And so the next thing I'm in a thong, you know, I'm like, all right, well, this is fun. And that's how that day started out. Um, and there's some compromising pictures somewhere of me out there. I can't wait to find them. <laughs> so it took over a year to get those pictures from Lionsgate. In the end, they gave me, you know, like the pictures, but like not the full quality pictures. They're like, oh, just low to, res. Yeah. Well, no, they were good. They were great. But he's like, if I give you the full res, he's like, to give you an idea, you could blow this up on the Empire State Building and it wouldn't lose 
any like quality, like it would be perfect quality. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm doing that anytime soon. I'll take the load because it was going to take several hours to download. Yeah. So anyways, I, I don't know how you got me there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> uh, oh, you were asking about Penn and Teller. So, so I had done some television work and for years, people are like, you should go on America's Got Talent. You should go on Penn and Teller. And I just honestly had no interest. Like my careers by, by God's grace thriving, we're doing a ton of shows, but you know, pre pandemic we're, I think in 2019, I did 178 shows, you know? And so, wow, that's a lot of shows. um, Yeah. And so things are going really well, but then pandemic hits and we entered into like a whole new season. And I know everybody has their own story. And with that, but we went from perform. I was the last of the performers at the Magic Castle. So we were in there, you know, March up till the 20th of March or something like 19th, right in there. And um, then they canceled the shows for the Magic Castle um, for the performers for the following week. Mm. I'm on my way to Idaho and it was for a large event, maybe four or 5,000, something like that. I had done it before and I, you know, I'm on my way up to Idaho and they confirmed we're, we're a go, we're a go, we're a go. I'm like, all right, I'm driving up there and I get a call saying the nurse is just backed out. Um, so when you're mm, at a large uh, event, you have a medical staff and they're like, we can't in good conscience go on. And so that was like the first of just the domino effect, you know? Oh, yeah. And so Within the next two weeks, maybe a month at the most, everything, including the one we had on New Year's night, got canceled, you know. So we're in March, early April, and it's done, you know. And so um, overnight, we start doing like Zoom shows, but, you know, nobody knew, like, nobody wanted to charge anything uh, or pay anything. And we're just like, well, let's do it. We just had no idea what was coming. So we're in the middle of that season in, I, I'm reading through the book of Ecclesiastes at that point, And it says, send your ships out, uh, that you may get a return on your grain, you know, so you're going to invest in some things. Maybe you get a return on it. Maybe you don't. <laughs> and so then it says, invest in seven, no, and eight things. Cause you never know what might succeed. And so we called it our super eight during the pandemic is I wrote a, um, I wrote that book and another book that hasn't come out yet. I don't know if it ever will. I just, um, you know, so we, that was part of our super eight is like, let's write. I created a video series. I created like all these different, we had eight things, but one of them was Penn and Teller, you know, it's like, okay, let's. Oh, so Penn and Teller is just like one of eight things that just keep the, keep the party going. It was going. like, what else am I doing during the pandemic, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know? And so it's like, we have zero, like zero income coming in. It's like, praise God, we had been saving and we had, you know, we could pull out of this and, you know, so we're, you know, people, some people were giving a, (laughs) I hope they're not listening, like a donation for a Zoom show. We did have some people later on that Zoom started to take its like own force and people were like, okay, this is a real thing. But early on people like, hey, we we're going to see if we could gather people online. Will you do a show? Yeah, let's do it. And I think it's one of the things that has always through the recession through this, people know they could call me. And for the most part, I'm going to say yes. Like, let's try to make it happen. I'm not going to try to put, well, if you don't come up with this figure, if you don't do this. And I think with some, not just magicians, but entrepreneurs, it's like, I, I need this. Um, don't call me if you can't do this. And it's, 
I, I think it's why people know like you could call in any season. And so with we'll see the effects with the pandemic. But in 2008, later on, after I'd said yes to like really low ball offers, it's like this is the only budget we have. Awesome. I'll be there later on when they had a full budget. They're like, I don't even want to know the price. Whatever price you tell me, I'm going to pay because they weren't trying to lowball me. They're like, this is a situation our organization's oh, yeah, in. No, you know, the so, whole thing hit everyone. Yeah. Right. It, um, so, uh, so with Penn and Teller, it's like, well, let's see what happens. Like, what else am I doing? I guess I'll do it. So it wasn't like I had this strong desire. I just want to be on their show. I just, um, so I send in a video. Oh, this is a side note that I love <laughs> um, of how we got the video. Uh, so during the pandemic, one of the things was like, let's create, you know, as many videos. Somebody built a studio for me. Will I get a call from Prison Fellowship? I think that's the name of Prison Fellowship. That Chuck Colson's he founded this um, this ministry. And they have the largest prison ministry in the world. And during the pandemic, uh, they couldn't do any of what they call their hope events. They normally do 250 of them a year throughout all these penitentiaries around the country and around the world. Well, they can't do any of them. So they um, they hired in a company to film three different people doing whatever um message they had that would bring hope, you know? And so I was one of those and it literally at the state level got approved in 44, 45 States that it will be shown in every penitentiary. Wow! So I had the opportunity to uh, essentially I'm the most famous magician in prison right now. <laughs> Check block four, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I love. Like I, especially with my background with my biological father and I've done a number of things in prison and with, um, our juvenile hall system. And, you know, it, it's people end up in prison for so many different reasons and yeah. to just abandon our people in prison just isn't the right well, thing. Amen my that. They, you know, you're, um, so you're kind of the Johnny cash of uh, magicians in prison. <laughs> uh, so, that video that the, that we shot with um, Prison Fellowship, I I called up the company. Uh, they hired in a company to film that and said, hey, can we use this? Well, you don't own that. They own that. I have to ask them. So they ask and they're like, as long as you're not selling it, you could do it. So I send in a video where essentially I play Russian roulette with my eyeball. I'm not <laughs> saying it's the brightest idea in the world, but that's what I'm doing. And so... So I sent it in and I get an email back, not, we love it. Uh, could you write up a script for us um, with no audience, um, Penn and Teller and Allison, who's the host? And I'm like, okay. I mean, didn't you watch the video? Like, I'm just going to type up that script. Okay, boom. So I type up that script, change out whoever's name I was using for Allison's name, you know, and made some other tweaks, but you know, pretty much sent that in. They're like, they send it back and they cross out a bunch of stuff. We don't like this. We like this. I'm all, I'm not going to say that. And so I just don't like, I'm not going to say that. I would say this, you know, like I, I couldn't, t I would have to look back at these emails, but some of it was a little too harsh or things I wouldn't, I wasn't comfortable Yeah, just saying. not your persona. And I'm not, I don't know. I'm not at a point in my career where I'm like, I'm just going to say whatever I can and whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to be on TV. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. 
I'm not saying that. And they're like, uh, this is your script. It's your choice. You, but we're going to try to work with you on the script. So we go back and forth. Well, 22, 23 emails later, you know, we're still going back and forth. I have no idea. I'm like, I guess it's a good thing, you know, but I don't. And then finally I get the email. We'll see you in Vegas, you know. And so that's the beginning. I have exactly 70 days before I'll end up in Vegas. And uh, but, but from the time I got that email saying, we'll see you in Vegas, I never thought this isn't going to fool anybody. I mean, it does fool, like it's not designed to like fool Penn and Teller. Like these are two of the most knowledgeable magicians in the world. I, now I need to figure out how am I going to fool them? You know, it, the show's called fool us, yeah. you know, like, and I've talked to magicians that are like, I don't care. Like if you go on there, it's going to be great for your career, whether you fool them or not under contract. And it's true under their contract. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, you tell me, am I allowed to say things that are well, under their we'll contract? Edit it out um, if you're not. All right. <laughs> go for uh, it. But they'll only say positive things about any magician that if you look at their show, they never say anything negative about any mm. magician on their show. And it's yeah. under contract because there's other television shows. I won't name those that part of their stick is taking it, you know, it, whatever talent down and get off our show and you're buzzed out, you know, all that type right, of stuff. Right, right. And they didn't want that type of show to their credit. Yeah. So, which is great because there's a lot of notable, great magicians that have been on these television shows that get torn a new one and affects their career. Yeah. So this is, this is going to be a positive thing no matter what. Yeah. But in my head, I'm like, I don't know. I, I can't even hear you say right now, like, it doesn't matter if you fool them. Like, that doesn't compute in my head. I'm like, I if I'm going to go on there, I'm going to at least attempt to fool them. So, Mel. Well, for to, sure. That, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, but I know guys who are like, I'm just going to go on there. Like, I don't care whether I fool I, them just, or not. I get yeah. airtime on TV. Right. And, yeah, yeah. and they know they'll probably get millions of views on YouTube and on air and all, all that type of stuff. Yeah. And, and people, you know, book tickets for their show or, yeah. you know, bring them out. But I, I was like, I can't do that. So I went old school, Mel. I went back to practicing 10 hours a day. Um, <laughs> and so for the next 70 days, we had family conversations. Like I'm going to invent like anytime outside of here, like you have a hundred percent, but 10 hours a day. So, so um, I'm up early every day working on this thing. And what I would do is I would set a clock for one minute and I would work on 45 seconds of the five minute routine and then reset it at one minute. I would practice those same, that same part of the routine again. And so I did that for 10 hours straight, just working on that 45 seconds after 10 days, I went to the next 45 seconds, you know? And so that's how I would work on the routine every day. And then a week before I'm about to go on in, you would know this cause you know, some of the background of Penn and Teller. Uh, but I had a friend of mine who's, um, another magician and he's also, um, a believer, you know, he, um, he's like, do I just heard you're going to be on Penn and Teller. I think you should throw in the towel. And I was like, what? And he's like, uh, these guys have been known to be cruel towards Christians at times. Um, and I, I have like, no, like, I don't want to say anything bad about Penn and Teller. My experience with them was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, he's like, I really think you, uh, this wouldn't be best for you. And I think you should throw in the towel. He's like, I want you to watch a video or two I'm going to send to you. And then I want you to pray about it. And so 
I, I pray about it. And, um, you know, my wife and I felt like a strong sense, like we've been praying about it at least for 70 days, you know, um, like it's been a big discussion and prayer and like, and so I call him back and say, you know, I, I, I think I'm supposed to do this. Like we need to be in the world, but not out of the world, you know, like I need to be there. And, um, as he asked me this question and he's like, um, if you're not familiar with the trophy, the trophy says fool us. And there's a giant F you can look this up a little O a little O, um, an L and then a giant U and then a tiny S. So from uh, that's Penn and Teller, that's Penn and Teller from a little distance, you have a giant F you, right? And he's like, do you really want a giant F you trophy? <laughs> And I was like, well, kind of, I don't want to go on there. I didn't say that, but I didn't want to go on there and not get it. Right. But he agreed like, uh, that, that I, I should go on there. Like he wasn't, he was just trying to present. He wasn't sure if I was aware he prayed over me. And then, um, a few days later, you know, I would head off to, to Vegas (laughs) and incidentally, and this is, this is just for, for me, where, where I'm at, this is, you know, everybody has their own journey of where they're at in life. And so just as a man of faith and trying to live that out in every situation I'm in is, you know, this trophy went from fool us to a giant F you. And I was like, God, you're about redeeming things. And I wrote out a long prayer just saying, if you allowed me to win, um, today, you know, cause it was the day of, um, uh, if you allowed me to win, I would turn this trophy upside down to represent that you're a God that redeems things. It turns the world upside down, that loves the unlovable, that does the unthinkable of sending his own son and, um, loving us so much that you would die in our place. All those types of things. Like I, I'm like, okay. Um, and so I'm reading through Romans and in Romans eight, it says, if God is for us, F you, who can be against us? And so now I'm looking at this uh, going, this started as fool us, for us, or um, fool us, F you. And then what if this represented that God's for us? And so that's what's in my head um, as I'm like, if I win, um, I, I'm going to turn this trophy upside down. To, and this isn't, it, it's not anything for Penn. It's just my own journey of like, this is what I, I feel like um, would be my best to represent, you know? And yeah. so, um, so then uh, any questions up to that point? Cause I, I'm going to about, I'm about to go backstage and start from backstage with the, no, I, I don't have any questions. Do you Mel? Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, is that uh, having met those guys and spent some time with them, yeah. they, they are, you know, they're, they're interesting guys. And, and that's yeah. what entertainers need to be yeah. is interesting. I, you know, um, we talked, I talked to Penn and Teller that basically the whole conversation was over religion when I yeah. had lunch with them, you know, ta- thinking about talking about atheism and yeah. religion for an hour and a half with Penn and Teller that that's <laughs> what I did, you know? Yeah. Um, but they were, um, you know, they, they're bright guys and oh, yeah. they're not like uh, Beavis and Butthead where they just throw names around and name calling. They have arguments they have yeah. positions that they've thought through carefully and frankly they were more versed in a lot of things than i was yeah and i i frankly i learned a lot from them uh, Penn emailed me later and recommended uh 
Richard Dawkins Blind Watchmaker the, the oh, book. Yeah. I read it and uh and then I read it again. I read it a few times and I got his other book uh I forget the name. God is not great or something. And uh in chapter 3 he makes his big grand announcement of why there's almost certainly no god. He puts a little caveat on yeah. there. And uh I I think it was at this point I feel very con- conversant with the topics and I think it's uh uh, you know, I think the arguments are, you know, lame, frankly. And yeah. I think there's a lot of backlash on Dawkins, but they were big Dawkins fans. Yeah. 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 So it was, uh, it was a life changing experience, but it wasn't because they called anybody names. They just, they had their arguments. Yeah. I just happen to think there's much better arguments yeah. to counter that. But, um, but you don't wander in there naively. Right. <laughs> you, know, yeah, you, yeah. you learn that. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Metaxas, but he, um, he, there's an article that came out, I think in either New York times or in the New York or something like that, that was in the fifties or sixties that, um, essentially said, um, that if you still believe that God exists, you know, like you're no intelligent person could hold that argument anymore. And he rewrote, and I wish I could remember the name of the article. Cause it's like, you know, it uses their same question, but reverses it. And it became the most shared um, Facebook share from the New York or New York Times or whatever it is ever. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's been shared like two or 300,000 times. And, uh, and he wrote a book on it, but just dealing with like, it's, it's not naive to believe in God. Like there's, lots of reasons you could look around and go like, there's an intelligent designer and, but yeah, he makes the, and I, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, yeah. So Penn and Teller, that's, that's um, no, it's, it's big league discussions yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, um, so my, th- these are my limited conversations with Penn and Teller. So I'm backstage and I just finished a rehearsal with, I'll say the fake Allison and the fake Penn and Teller. So you, you know, um, and I forgot like a line. I've done this piece probably a thousand times, but the new version that I designed for them because I revamped and changed a bunch of different things Mm -hmm. is like I had um, uh, memorized a script and, you know, I could always go off script, but I, you know, had it dialed in and I totally blanked on a line. I'm like, producers, you know, and I knew their names, you know, I'm like, call them out. Like somebody give me my line, line. <laughs> silence, you know, and they'd help me like through zoom if I had a problem with the line or whatever, but this is like, they know the next thing's the real deal. And so then I eventually get it. I go through and I'm like, Oh man. And so I go backstage and I had just seen Hamilton with my daughter and my wife, uh, maybe a month before. And there's a song in there, you know, I'm not going to miss my shot. And so literally I'm backstage because the line I missed was like, I only have one shot to get this right. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm like, I'm not going to miss my shot. I'm not going to miss my shot. I'm not going to miss my <laughs> shot. You know? And so then I get the call to come out. The stage lights are dim and Penn and Teller both say, uh, Hey Danny, thanks for being on the show. You know? And, um, Teller asked me, um, you know, you ready for this? I'm like, ready as you get, you know, he's like, I oh, will have fun. We're looking forward to seeing it. And, you know, um, Penn said, you know, some similar things, but you know, it was more teller than I'm like, Oh, he talks, you know, like I knew he talked, <laughs> but I, I haven't heard him talk to me, uh, you know? So, uh, so, 
And so then they start talking to themselves. And then Allison's talking to one of the stage managers at a stage manager, both on stage and backstage. And so the stage manager on stage is prepping her. And then, you know, he walks off, lights come up. And then if you watch the episode, if you look up, you know, not that you need to do this, but if you look up Danny Ray, Penn and Teller, like you'll find it. I've Um, done it. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah, but what I, you fact, see, I think we should put the clip in the in the in this podcast right. if right. we can do that. Yeah, for yeah. sure. It's so, great. but that is essentially what happens. They did cut uh, a couple of things to like tighten it up a little bit, <clears throat> but ninety five percent of like you are seeing exactly what they see. So uh, when I uh, when I finish, you know, you were told to stand, and at that time. Stand here um, if you've been vaccinated. Stand here if you haven't been vaccinated. Uh-huh. You know, because this is right in the middle of the pandemic. All and right, so yeah. I, I take my my stand and Alice. So on camera, um, this part definitely doesn't happen in real time and it happens with a, a ton of edits. The performance is almost identical to what I did with a couple things cut out. Um, and a couple things I was bummed. I'm like, oh, that was a funny line. I mean, it would have been good. But they, you know, they have to trim it wherever they um, need to trim it. So, but I have a 15 minute conversation with Allison that gets trimmed down into a 30 second to a minute thing. And then yeah. they're having a 15 minute conversation about, you know, the, the piece I did and whether it fooled them or not. And the, one of the producers and the magic consultant is listening into that conversation. So, and this is a little background for those of you who don't know, like to fool these guys, there's 32 cameras in the room. So you don't just get to fool them with one angle. If you ever see them like look down at their, uh, I don't know if they're iPads, but some sort of, you know, device that way, you'll see them like with their finger as the person's performing, like um, flick over. Well, they're looking at different cameras. So they have access to every camera. So side, back, the whole. Everything you could think of, you know. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So you're, they have access to all of that. So afterwards, you know, in that, if they're like, I want to see this from a different angle, I want to see this. And I knew that going in, they're like, just so you know, this isn't, you know, give me the perfect angle and, you know, we'll be fine. If you're palming a card, they're going to see it. Yeah. And and there's ways to hide that, you know, where, you know, you cup your hands together, you know, where it's covered from all angles, you know, but you have to think those things through um, for how you're going to fool them. So when they come back out after their discussion, you know, they're like, okay, we're ready, you know. And so then Penn, you know, goes on to say, you know, we think that the device um, or we does that device have some sort of gimmick to it? Something like that, right? I'm like, no, it actually He's like, no, we don't think that's how it's done. I was like, oh, oh, wow. I need to just zip my mouth because, you know, he... He could take 10 guesses saying, we don't think that's oh, how yeah, it's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice try, Ben. <laughs> yeah. So then I'm like, don't answer any more questions. Or not, don't give him any information. If you ask yeah. a question, I'll answer it. Yeah. But he didn't ask a question. I had jumped in with like, and like he set me up, you know, so well. Like, uh, you know, so because he knew like uh, by that point, like he had to know, you know, like there's no gimmick there. So he's setting me up to see what I'm going to say. And then he took a, another guess and, um, and I invited them up to, to check out 
the device. And so they come up there in between you and me, there are multiple gimmicks around them completely. And you know, Penn has these monster hands and he slaps his hand down. Mm -hmm. I'm like two inches over. If he picks that up, I am done. You know, I like it. And, and there's stuff on the other side of the table where Teller was, I'm like, Oh man, like it, this could all fall apart right now. Yeah. Uh, Cause I heard they wouldn't come up to the table, but I invited them up to the table, you know? So it's like all these oh, things gee. where I'm like, Oh man. And so he asked a couple more things and then he's like, well, if that's not how it's done, you definitely fooled us. And so then a trophy Boom. came down. Yeah. Um, There's the big answer. Yeah, there Danny it is. Ray fooled Penn and Teller. Yeah. Crazy moment in time right there. You know, that's kind of the Super Bowl of magic today is that show. Because those guys, um, you know, I like those guys. Yeah. You know, we have some theological differences. Yeah. But, but yeah. you know, whatever. Um they're fun guys. They're good entertainers. They're, uh, they, their work ethic is incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's for sure. Your work ethic to get there is incredible. I mean, you don't get at that league without really uh, practicing, yeah. you know, uh, like religiously, no pun intended. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, you, you have fooled them. And that's, you know, it's like a Super Bowl ring. You got it forever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, it's funny, like looking at the discussion online, which I stopped because you get, you know, too much craziness of people with theories and all this. And I want to say to everybody, like, I did all of that, like all the theories, like it's not one, it's all because I, this is like the decision I made was to create nine different layers of deception with it instead of one, which is what it originally had. Mm. And so there's so much going on that they're not just going to be able to say like, oh, we think it's a marked envelope. Okay, let's say they're all marked. Like literally, you can mark them all. It wouldn't explain it, which is like a weird thing. But it's like, okay, oh, that's you one. You got to go through layers. Yeah, of, so it's oh, like I layered okay. this thing where, you know, in the magic consultant said they have to get two or three of them at least before I'll like even let them say like you fool, you know, like because it's a conversation. But ultimately, if Penn says no, we we think that's enough to say we fooled them, you know, like yeah. um. But I was like, okay, let's layer this thing and, and, you know, do, you know what, and this is the beauty of sleight of hand is make it look like you're doing nothing when all these different things are going on. And yeah, very, so, very sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. so when that trophy came down though, um, and, uh, yeah, so the trophy comes down, I shake Penn's hand, I have the trophy in my left hand and I need to walk off stage right to my right. Right. Uh -huh. And so I switch hands with the trophy to turn it upside down, put both hands up in there. Thank you. You know, and then put the trophy down. So it's only there for like a second at most. Right. I walk off stage and then immediately the director, the two producers, we need to get Danny back out here. The stage manager we're, we're I knew exactly why stage managers like, no, we need to get the next act on. Danny's done. They argue like back and forth going like, no, we need to do this. Figure it out. Edit it later. You know, like and I they don't really know what's going on, why they need to refilm. They're like, we just need to refilm one thing. Nope, we don't have time. So they go back and forth. So I really didn't know whether that part would air in the show or not where I turn the trophy upside down. But it airs for all a tens or like not 10 seconds, like two seconds. Second, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but for me, it's like one of those things of coming like full circle. There's other things like the book. 
I, I'm not exaggerating when I say we spent six hours that on a piece that I created for Penn and Teller with that book um, that we filmed the whole thing around the book cover and I did a whole piece I designed for it. They cut that whole thing and I was like, oh, our publishers, they were planning on doing some sort of promo once it came out, but I have no control over what they cut, what yeah, they keep yeah, in. Yeah. Um, but we spent a considerable amount of time, but they ended up, you know, going with the story of my, my biological father and yeah. my um, stepdad. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I remember talking to you on the phone about the whole thing. I think I was one of the chosen few that knew you won before. It yeah. Aired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh they, they, I thought it was interesting that Penn and Teller, you know, actually were curious about the book and love the concept and everything. Yeah. And that, that in and of itself was a cool part of the story. Yeah. And you never know, you know, what, what happens <clears throat> with that part of the story that doesn't air because there were numerous conversations I had with the producers and there's another um, director that just directs the intros and so who knows the impact that might have had, you know, because we spent a lot of time with those guys for something that didn't air. At the same time, it's like, well, you don't get control over those, you know, that's in well, you, yeah. you, the media. One thing, I mean, I've been literally on the way to the studio and they say, oh, breaking news, turn around. Oh, I mean, yeah. you just never know. The media is yeah. just so all over the place. But I mean, the bottom line is, uh, you know, you have this crazy cool career very big people don't have any clue how much effort goes into just you know a, a two minute or one minute routine yeah when, when i was walking around with uh, david copperfield in his warehouse he goes you know i've got i forget the number but it was something like i've got i think 15 or 20 hours worth of magic in this warehouse well that blew me away because i knew the effort to get in yeah. just a single minute right and he goes that doesn't sound like a lot and i said no i i, I know what that means that's yeah. gigantic um and just you know huge crates for a little effect that looks like it's a <laughs> handkerchief is actually a megalithic right. you know uh crane or something um and uh you know, let's face it, the the magic world is huge. It's a huge part of entertainment. I think Vegas magic is probably, I don't know if it's number one, but it's up there. Yeah. Um, and to, and to kind of hit that top, top tier. I mean, I've always thought of the Magic Castle as top tier, but then the Penn and Teller thing kind of took it to mainstream and even upped it. And in all levels, you're, yeah. you're nailing it. Um, thank you. Uh, it's funny you were saying, um, you know, the top tier uh, on that Idaho drive, I was taking my mom up to Idaho when I found I was canceled and we're, you know, just driving and it's not often I get 13 hours of conversation with my mom <laughs> each way. Right. Yeah. And so in there, she's like, you know, you know, like, where would you be? And I've told you a little bit about my mom, you know, like <laughs> the rationale, right? where would you be? You know, I'm like, I have no idea. Mom. like, I, I know like when you look at magicians, you know, like there's no like your number, this, your number, that, you know, uh, but I'm like maybe in the top 5%, you know, like I was like, you know, and, um, and so then the next time I'm at a party with all the family, uh, they're all like, we heard you're number five in the world now. I'm like 5% and number five are totally different, but that's my mom, you know, number five. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you're doing more important things with with yeah. your youth ministry and and blending magic into it. But yeah. you're definitely at that perform at that level where you you yeah. you deserve a hotel on the Vegas Strip, I think. <laughs> but you know, because uh, I I know some of those guys along the Strip. I'm not going to say any names, but yeah. I I know who, no pun intended, outperforms them all. I mean, you know, when you're you're doing stuff at the Magic House, a close-up with the harshest eyes. You know, they make Penn and Teller look friendly. Some some of these guys, oh, yeah. they're, they're rabid. Um, and you're fooling them all and making the room just erupt with astonishment. I mean, just absolute freaking out. Uh, it's, it's really a show in an, within a show to see you yeah. perform. And it's it's super cool to just kind of see your your journey. Um and I'm I'm so grateful, Mel. What, what have you? What you got? Some questions or thoughts? You know, I um I read your book. I loved the title. My husband oh. got a kick out of it. <laughs> no, I can't make your wife disappear. Um, you it probably, is a question we, I get asked most by men at the back of the room when people were like, "Make it more neutral." You know, I was like, "It's not funny because no woman has ever come up to me and said, can you make my husband disappear?'" <laughs> it's always the men that think they're being funny, and so yeah. that's why I think the title worked. But well, that was that was one of the questions where the title came. I kind of oh, guess yeah, yeah. that might be the case. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. You do talk a lot about your magic and your ministry and how to create a magical marriage. Um, I love Kimberly's Corner. Those are sections yeah. in the book where his wife, Kim, um, interjects her thoughts and wisdom as well. And um, you talked about a time when you and your son were together in your wife's car. Her car was vandalized. And yeah. you didn't call the police first thing. You did something else first, yeah. which kind of blew me away. So I was wondering if you could remember what that was yeah. and yeah, just yeah. tell us um why? Yeah, so uh, I think like a lot of performers, you have your back of the room merch that you try to offset some of the cost. And one of the things that we've had back there for years is a bracelet that says live remarkably. And then on the inside of it, it says um, pray continually, give thanks and everything. Something else for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, what are the three? Do you know them? Um, pray. Um be thankful. Something else. Anyways. Uh, ceaselessly or something. No, that's continuously. Yes, you got it. Okay, now All I don't right. know the third uh, one. <laughs> that's so funny because I could do this first in my sleep usually, but um, maybe it'll come to me later. Anyways, the um, the be thankful in everything, mm -hmm. right, is, is we've just learned in, you know, good, bad situations. Like I've had that. I don't have it on today, but I've had that bracelet on and read that verse so many times that, you know, it's easy to not be thankful because uh, it's like, oh, uh, I shouldn't be thankful because of circumstances. But it's like, no, be thankful in all circumstances, not some. And so when we got broken into and we're talking not Copperfield level, but probably 15,000 ish dollars worth of stuff, you know, for my little close up show gone, including the piece I did for Penn and Teller, which would have been gone because this was before that. And, uh, there's a rock through the window is very disorienting. I'm like, why is there glass? What? Oh, all my stuff is gone. And I have a show that night. And so my son who was wearing that bracelet, you know, um, he, he was with me and, um, we both like, we don't know why Kai, but we're going to thank you for this situation. And we don't know who has our stuff, but we want to thank you. And we just took time to pray and, uh, and we thank God for what would happen, whether the stuff is returned or not. 
um, God, that you would um, use this situation for your glory. And so craziness of that is was after that we called the police. They show up and his name is Officer Molinax. That entire day, he went on like this search, finding the the our stuff, eventually finds two kids, two kids. They were maybe um in their twenties. Um, but they uh they had uh, stolen the stuff and they had thrown some of the stuff they didn't want in a in a dumpster. And originally he said, you know, so I got the stuff out. But when he says he got the stuff out, he meant he told these two kids to jump in the dumpster and get it out. Um, so, uh, so over the course of that day, a side note, the show, it didn't come before the show. I ended up doing a show from Walmart, the beauty of doing close up show. You know, you go to Walmart, you pick up rubber bands, cards, you know, you grab some coins, you figure it out. And I've had to do maybe three or four shows like that in the last um, 20 years, but that was one of them. After that, um, performance, we get a call and, uh, oh, by the way, if you're a thief, the way they found them, um, don't, <laughs> don't turn on the iPad that my son, um, put lost. And so he immediately got a notification with a location. Wow. And so that's how he was able to pinpoint it. Like it's one of these houses right here. And so um, they immediately turned it off too late. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so yeah, he brought us into the station and I, I'd given him a line item. Like, he's like, I need everything. Oh, this is something that's not in there that I just remembered the way they actually found the stuff was with something that was worth less than a nickel, a sponge ball. Hmm. So he's like, I want you to write down, regardless of the cost, everything that's in there. Well, playing cards, another deck of playing cards, a business card, like literally like he's like anything and everything and put a cost next to it. So I have a list of like, I don't know, 80, 90 things. One of them's a sponge ball. When he knocks on the store, the mom answers and she's like, no, nope, no kids are here. And he sees the sponge ball out of the corner of his eye. And he's all, I'm going to need to search the house. Oh, you don't have a warrant, you know? And he's all, I have reason to believe that these two kids are here, you know, because he saw a five cent, you know, like what a crazy deal. So um, throughout the course of like the next 24 hours, like 99% of the stuff, like, there were probably cards thrown away, you know, no big deal, you know, but like 99% because this guy went above and beyond. So fast forward about two weeks later, I get a call from the captain of that city that says, Hey, I heard what happened. Um, and saw my story on Facebook, you know, I shared it on Facebook and, you know, thank you to our officers. Um, and I didn't put his name because I didn't know the legality of that um, at the time. Now I know. Um, but the captain calls me and says, would you come in and perform for all of our officers? Oh, wow. So what a, like, like there's just no way I could have orchestrated like, hey, Mr. Captain, <laughs> I'd like to perform for your officers. I think it'll be fun for that. Like it just never would have happened had my stuff not been stolen. So not to... Like, it, it's just hard to understand, like, when God says something, be thankful in all circumstances. We've been in plenty of things where I'm like, 
I don't get why, but God, I know you have a bigger story Mm -hmm. that's a part of this, not just this tiny bit that I see right now. It's just, it's a testament to walking the walk. Yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And there's some, I know that not all that stuff's in the book. There are some of the backstory with kind of things that happen as a result of that. And, um, I haven't done it, but, um, Officer Molinax has invited me like for a ride along. Um, yeah. So what what city is this in? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Hesperia, possibly. Oh, right. Victor, here is that right next to Victorville? Like the next yeah, yeah, door? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think Hesperia. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That was a great question, Mel. Uh, great story. Um, so, Danny Ray, thanks for spending so much time for, with us. Yes. And I, um, I'm just going to ask you one last question. Any other message you want to communicate to our audience about the whole topic of post-traumatic thriving? I would just say, I I know most likely some people are tuning in because of the trauma and the, the struggle is, is there is hope. Don't, don't give up that we're wherever you're at. You know, I would just encourage you to find somebody to do life with, um, that you do belong, that you do matter, that your story matters. And there's a, a next step and that's, you know, maybe calling or talking or being with somebody, um, to, to navigate the pain together. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And Danny Ray, thank you again. The yeah. book is no, I can't make your wife disappear. Yes, he did fool Penn and Teller. Yeah. What do you know? <laughs> Congratulations on the Super Bowl win. And, uh, thanks again for coming on post-traumatic thriving where we learn to dive, survive, or thrive. The choice is yours. Thanks for supporting our podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and follow us on your favorite social media. For books, merchandise, or to donate, visit coreiq.com. Post Traumatic Thriving is produced by Core IQ, a nonprofit with a mission to teach the life skills we all need but are not taught in school. Core IQ and the Post Traumatic Thriving podcast are for informational purposes only and do not provide medical or mental health advice. Always consult with your licensed medical and mental health care providers.